Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Scott has preached on the first six uh, Beatitudes so far in the series, and I'm going to pick up where he left off, and I'm just going to cover uh, one today, and then one, Lord willing, next Sunday, the last two. So today I'm covering verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5, but I would like to read the Beatitudes in their entirety so we can sort of see the progression of thought. So this is the Word of the Lord, <clears throat> Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, anybody who approaches the Sermon on the Mount, and Scott has made this clear, anyone who approaches the Sermon on the Mount wrongly thinking that Jesus is telling you that this is the law whereby you can earn your way into the kingdom of heaven is going to be disappointed from the very beginning because the opening beatitude, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not for those who have enough spiritual wealth and enough moral wealth that they can purchase the kingdom from God. This is those who admit complete spiritual bankruptcy. We've got nothing to offer God. We cannot bargain with God. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot buy or earn the kingdom from God. The only way you get the kingdom is by saying, Lord, I've got nothing in my hand to bring. All I have is the cross to cling to. Please save me by your grace. And we mourn over our sin. It makes us meek in how we talk to and deal with others in our life. It produces a real desire for righteousness and for true holiness, Christ-likeness in our lives. We become more merciful to others because we've been shown so much mercy in Christ. Our hearts begun, begin to be pure, that is not hypocritical like Scott was saying, and also spiritually, morally pure. We, we love the things of God because we can better see God if our heart, if you, if you think of your heart as like a lens that you're looking through. An impure lens leads to a very Im unclear image that you're looking at. But we've all had binoculars, right, that are smudged, and you're looking through them, you go, I can hardly see anything. But yet, if, if the lens is pure and clean, we have a clear vision of what we're trying to look at. The pure heart has the clearest sight of God, both in this life and in the life to come. And then we get to, to today's beatitude, blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now here, peacemaking is, again, not the way we earn our right to be God's sons. What it is saying is, once we realize all that those earlier verses have, have, have said, once we realize our bankruptcy and our need and God's mercy in our life, well then, we begin to show the kind of attitude God has shown to us 
When we, when we encounter others, we begin to be peacemakers, and that reflects that our character is becoming bit by bit more like God. And in that sense, we are sons of God. Now listen, th th this could be confusing. The, the language of being son of God or a son of God or sons of God in the Bible can mean different things. Are, are you ready here? So, so we are never going to be sons of God in the way that Jesus is. Okay? He is the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity, eternal Son of God. We are not going to be divine in that sense. We're not that kind of Son of God like Jesus. But we do, in our humanity, we begin to reflect His character. And in the Bible, the person you're acting like is who you are the Son of. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil because he's a liar, and you're lying about me, and he's a murderer, and you're trying to murder me. When your behavior mimics the devil, the devil is, you're acting like you're his son in the biblical language. And on and on you could show. But here, to be a peacemaker is to show that we have the character of God is being worked out in our life. We're beginning to show ourselves to be sons of God by our peacemaking. Now, I've got three points, and it's pretty simple. Number one, what peacemaking does not mean. Number two, what peacemaking does mean. And finally, number three, what prevents relational peacemaking. So what peacemaking doesn't mean, what it does mean, and what prevents relational peacemaking. And obviously, I have one single sentence in my text, so I'm going to have to go outside of my text to get a little bit more insight on this particular issue, and we will be doing that as we, as we go forward. So let me say some things that peacemaking is not, what peacemaking does not mean. Peacemaking <clears throat> does not mean appeasement. Now, do you know what appeasement is? To, I, I looked up the actual definition to make sure I got this right, okay? Appeasement is to pacify or placate someone by acceding to their demands, just sort of letting them sort of walk on you no matter what, just sort of just going with whatever the flow is, just sort of giving away my desire to someone else. That's, that's not what peacemaking is. In fact, peacemaking is not the personality trait of agreeableness. Now, I'm not making fun of agreeableness, okay? Every personality trait, so personality trait is sort of our natural instinct by the way that we're born, the way that we're wired, just our natural pull, how we naturally act. Some of us are by nature less agreeable, and we have different temptations. We have different struggles. If we're less agreeable, we may have troubles, we may be overly argumentative, or we might cause more quarrels than we should. That's that personality trait. But agreeableness is more just someone who says, yes, whatever you say, I don't want to cause a fuss. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to rile things up. I don't want to make myself look bad. I don't want to get disapproval. And so it's sort of this desire to please people, this, this, this uh, agreeable mentality. That is not what a peacemaker is. You have to understand, the Beatitudes are not natural um, personality traits that anybody has by nature and by birth. These are only supernatural characteristics that come by supernatural new birth. And so, what exactly is a peacemaker? Well, it's not simply agreeableness. It also does not mean living in such a way that everyone loves you and thinks you're the greatest. Okay, you probably figured that's true, but I think I need to say that. If that were the case, then Jesus would not be a very good peacemaker, would He? Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker, and He was murdered for what He said. So let that factor in what we mean by peacemaker. Does, you see what I'm saying here? We, sometimes, okay, just before we get too far into this, a danger we can have in the Bible is sort of a reductionism. 
where we, what we do is we take a verse or a phrase and we reduce its meaning and we take it out of context. We reduce the meaning down to something very simple and we use it to sort of flatten the rest of the Bible. So someone could take this verse and say, well, peacemaker means you never make someone upset. You always stop all arguments. You never, ever stand up for what's true if it's going to get you in trouble. No, no, no. Peacemaking is just this kind of ultimate agreeableness. Well, when you compare this to the rest of Matthew, let alone the rest of the Bible, is that what peacemaking is. No. It, it means something more, more, more challenging than simply, than simply that. Let, let, me, let me give an example here. So t- turn to Acts chapter 13. This is, I believe Paul would have been qualified as a peacemaker, but I want, you to sh- I want to show you a passage we looked at a year ago in Acts chapter 13. Peacemaking does not mean making peace with error. Peacemaking does not mean making peace with error, especially when that error is a threat to someone's salvation or spiritual well-being. Do you remember this scene on the island of Cyprus? Look at verse 6 of Acts 13. This this passage does not contradict being a peacemaker, although it may sound like it at first. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, and sought to hear the Word of God. So, pause here. You have a Roman official named Sergius Paulus who wants to hear the gospel that's being proclaimed where he has jurisdiction on the island of Cyprus. So, he brings the preachers to him, the Roman leader, brings the preachers. He wants to hear their message. But in his area, right with him, is this guy, Bar-Jesus, this Jewish false prophet and magician who hates the gospel. So, so you get this? Evangelism's about to happen in front of this Roman leader, but there's a guy who's about to oppose Paul right next to him. So what's Paul going to do? As a peacemaker, let's see, what, let's see what happens. Verse 8, but Elimus, that's the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then, look at the result. Then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, did what? He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now listen, so many people want to say that being a peacemaker is contradicted by the activity of Paul in this verse. He called a guy in public a son of the devil and an enemy of all unrighteousness, making crooked all the straight paths of the Lord. I don't think that's a contradiction of biblical peacemaking. I'm giving you an extreme example to try to explain what I'm saying here, what I think Jesus is saying and Paul. Here's the point. In this moment, if Paul would have been agreeable with the Jewish magician, if Paul would have been agreeable with him, he would have let that guy steamroll his gospel opportunity and Sergius Paulus would not have been converted because he would not have heard the gospel. Do you hear? So to be a peacemaker, to try to make peace with God between this Roman official, Sergius Paulus, and God, to try to be a peacemaker for him, Paul had to use very strong words against someone who was trying to prevent that from happening, and it's all considered done being filled with the Holy Spirit. So do you see here? Peacemaking is a little more complicated, perhaps, than we might think. We can flip back to Matthew chapter 5. 
Let me give you another example. Don't, don't turn to this one. It would take too long. But do you remember Elijah uh, up against Ahab and Jezebel? Remember those terrible king and queen, the most, the most horrible king and queen of Israel's history, Ahab and Jezebel, just awful in all that they did and their idolatry and evil? Well, in 1 Kings 18, verses 17 and 18, Elijah appears before King Ahab. And you know what Ahab says? The wicked king to the righteous prophet? King Ahab says, says when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Troubler would be someone who takes away peace, right? Someone who is not a peacemaker. A troubler is the opposite. So the wicked king accuses the prophet of being a not a peacemaker, a troubler of Israel. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, do you see here this? When someone is trying to be honoring to God, and even being a peacemaker, sometimes they will be falsely accused of being a troubler of others. But Elijah says, the only reason why Ahab and Jezebel, you are troubled by me, is because you love your idols. And the fact that I oppose your idols makes me look like a troubler, not a peacemaker, but I'm actually after what is for your good and for your wholeness and for your peace. I want what is best for you, and idolatry is not what is best for you. And finally, what peacemaking is not. Peacemaking is not making peace with our own personal sin. We covered this on Thursday night. I won't repeat it all right now. I'll just say a quick thing. Cannot say this too often. Believers in the room, I'm assuming this is a lot of us, most of us in this room who know the Lord Jesus, your sinful nature, your flesh, is going to actively and daily seek to oppose your walk with the Lord through small and big temptations, through subtle and more direct temptations. All day, every day, your flesh is your number one enemy. It's not your roommate. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your employer. Your number one enemy and my number one enemy dwells within us. It is the body of flesh that every day seeks to oppose what is holy, righteous, and good and to bring us into sinful conduct. We never make peace with our flesh in this world. Peacemakers do not make peace with their sin. Peacemakers are violent, not against others, but against their own sinful temptations. We put to death by the Spirit uh, what is unholy within us, the deeds of the body, and we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So point number two, what does peacemaking mean? So we saw what it does not mean. Does it mean just simple agreeableness or just not offending people? Well, what does peacemaking mean? Most of us know that the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. And this is a word referring to having a right relationship with God and each other, and this just wonderful wholeness that comes when, when God is at work in someone's life. Well, first, let me walk through some things that peacemaking does mean. First of all, peacemaking involves introducing unbelievers to the God of peace and to the Prince of peace. Now listen, I, I know this isn't particularly popular. Turn, turn with me to, to Romans chapter 5, to your right. Romans chapter 5. So, peacemaking involves introducing unbelievers to the God of peace and to the Prince of peace. Look at Romans chapter 5, and, and I, I, will, I want to say this again clearly. The seemingly offensive truths in the Bible that describe our natural state apart from Christ. Do you guys understand how negatively the Bible describes us 
apart from Christ, dead in sin, loving uh, the, the deeds of the flesh, loving darkness rather than light. We're not just innocent victims in the Bible. We are willing participants enslaved to our sinful impulses and that enmity with God. And you say, okay, I came here. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to just be thrown on the ground for this. What am I? Well, listen, God is telling us what is true about us because it is what, is what we need to hear so that we can make advancement and victory over these things. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when we were all unbelievers, at some point in your past, as we were born in sin, we were not born Christians... As we, as we were unbelievers at whatever time you were converted, as we were unbelievers in our lives, we were not at peace with God, which led to all kinds of chaos and conflict in our life. And it wasn't until repentance and faith by God's grace occurred that finally we received objective, positional peace with God through Jesus Christ. Look, look at the state we were in before that happened. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were weak, we were ungodly when Christ died for us. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, that is not a state of peace, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have incredible news. This incredible news, that, that, that angst, that sense of unsettledness, the lack of peace. The wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, thrown about by the wind, and they never know peace, Isaiah said. Why? Because if I don't know Jesus in a saving way, I don't have genuine peace in my life fundamentally. And therefore, I will not have peace in many of my relationships. And the gospel offer is, listen, you can have peace with a holy God through the violent sacrificial death of Jesus in my place for my sins. And once I've acknowledged that, once I've become settled in the righteousness of Christ and the atonement of Christ, I now realize objectively the arms have been put away. There is no more battle going on. God and I are in a harmonious relationship that is only available through what Christ has done. You can turn back to Matthew 5. I'm just going to read a few verses here as you turn back. This is why you hear these verses. I hope these just sort of encourage you today as you hear this. Ephesians 5, the armor of God says, as shoes for your feet. Remember the armor of God? As shoes for your feet. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Isaiah 53, 5. But he, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We have the true answer to the need for peace that this world has. Listen, is there chaos in the world? Is there lack of peace? Are there wars and rumors of war? Are, are, are there acts of violence and terrorism? Are there just smaller acts of selfishness and, and, and evil within us? Yes, that's, that all owes to not understanding and rejoicing in the peace that we have only in Christ before God. 
All right, we'll continue here. What does peacemaking mean? Well, first of all, it has to do with our relationship with God. But secondly, peacemaking is about restoring fractured relationships when there has been a breach in them. Now, this is so immediately practical. I, I do hope this is helpful. This is something we all need uh, to progress in and, and to, to uh, become better at by God's grace. So it's restoring fractured relationships when there has been a breach. Proverbs 6 has some strong words to say for those who sow division among the brothers. You may remember this. Listen to these words from Proverbs 6. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, with perverted heart, devising evil, continually sowing discord. This person delights in divisiveness and division amongst relationships. And then later in the same chapter, it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. When God says, I'm going to give you seven things that I detest, we should pay attention. Here they are. Haughty eyes, so proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart, number four, that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run into evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the last one, one who sows discord among brothers. Someone who finds a delight in spreading rumors and gossip. They like to say the latest negative thing that they have heard about someone else. They, they like the, the power it feels of having that knowledge that no one else has. And you can display your knowledge. Look, I have the inside scoop on all this stuff, and I can show you how much I know. And I can also tear someone else down while I try to superficially try to lift myself up. And it is a temptation. Listen, it's a temptation for every single one of us in this room at different times and in different places. It's a temptation for me. There are times I can feel it. I know something about someone that is negative, and I want to tell it to someone because it shows. I got a little insider information here. It, it makes me look a little bit better in a worldly sense. But we have got to flee from that kind of mindset. I got some help here from another pastor named Colin Smith on some of these subpoints. but listen to, listen to these points here. First of all, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. I love that verse. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is realistic. Is it always possible to live in a harmonious relationship with everyone in your life? No, it is not always possible. But if, if it's not your fault, if it's someone else's fault that the relationship has fractured and it's not your fault, you do everything you can by God's grace to restore that relationship. If you've got past sin... Uh, I was talking to a member of our church, I was talking to a person here uh, few, earlier this week, and we both talked about how we had had a uh, time in our past where we had sinned against someone pretty badly, and years had gone by, and we both said, we, we need to go back and fix that. And I even told a story where, where that kind of thing had happened, and the Lord is incredibly gracious. You say, it may have been five years ago, it may have been 20 years ago, but if you know that you've wronged someone, and you know it is something you did that was wrong against them, I don't care how much they've wronged you, if you have wronged them in a way you know was sinful... You need to go confess that and make that right and apologize and seek the restoration and the peace of that relationship. And if they reject you at the end of the day, that's on them, not on you. But you've got to do everything you can do within your power by God's grace to restore fractured relationships. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Later in Romans 14, it says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, 
Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have it in the Lord, but we must maintain it. We must keep that going. We must refrain from always demanding our rights. Now listen, we talked about this in Acts. Remember when Paul was about to be whipped unjustly? He demanded his right as a Roman citizen to not be whipped, which is illegal, and he, he, that was fine. He claimed his right as a Roman citizen, and they unbound him, and that was not a sin. It's not always wrong to claim your rights, but there are times, and we all know it, where we think we have a right to something, but it's not coming out of love. It's coming out of a me-first desire and mindset, and in those moments, we've got to crucify our rights. We've got to lay those down. We've got to say, I know I have a right. I can claim it, but it's not the most loving thing. I just know it, and in those moments, we've got to lay down those rights, and and listen, if there was ever any moment where where someone laid down their rights, it was Jesus. Think about what it says in Romans 15. Listen to this. It says here, for Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Did Jesus have the right to stay in heaven? Yes. Did He have the right to not come and suffer? Yes. He laid down those, light, those rights and it cost Him everything as an act of love and service for us. So we must be willing, when necessary, to lay down our rights. Next, we must, uh, we must have peace before we can give peace. We have peace with God, but we, we need to be walking in that peace. We need to be experiencing the peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. We need to have more and more of that so that we can share it and give it to others. I love how Derek Thomas said, we must not let lack of peace be our fault. It must be the other person's fault. Division over truth is sometimes unavoidable, but division over being unchristlike is always unacceptable. If we've got to divide over truth, that's got to happen. That's okay. We, we, we can't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. That's not okay. Remember back in the 90s, was, this won't be as familiar to some, but in, in 1995, uh, evangelicals and Catholics together. This is just an old example, pops into my mind, ECT. Evangelicals and Catholics together was this big movement to say, we're going to unite the Catholic and Protestant church with this document where we're going to try to say that we, we believe the same gospel. And as you know, uh, Sproul MacArthur and D. James Kennedy stood up strongly against it. And there was a private meeting with a bunch of big highfalutin theologians in this room. And it went on for four or five or six hours. I don't remember how long. And, and R.C. Sproul, remember this? He, I mean, he loved these men he was debating. He loved them. But he, he said, listen, what we're doing right now is we're sacrificing truth for the sake of a sham unity. There, as long as the Catholic Church continues to teach its doctrine of the sacramental system, it doesn't believe in salvation by faith alone. And so long as we believe salvation by faith alone, we don't believe in the sacramental system. So these are not the same way of salvation. And to try to write a document where we both agree is getting sham unity at the expense and the cost of truth. That's not what a peacemaker does. And so R.C. Sproul in that meeting, and I wish there was videotape, I would pay $100. I would pay $100 easily to see this on video. R.C. Sproul, it is multi-eyewitness attested. R.C. Sproul, who was probably 50 years old, climbed up on the big oak table or some big meeting table. He climbed up on the table on his hands and knees and said, justification by faith is a gospel issue. This is a matter of the gospel. And everyone is 
R.C., uh, what's going on? But R.C. got it. He knew in that moment that you don't sacrifice truth for the sake of peace because it's not real peace. And so th- that's, that's, not, that's not what we can afford to do. And he- here's a huge tip for, for being a peacemaker. Jerry Edgar uh, has, has, has uh, pushed me on this in the past. I won't tell this. I got a couple little stories here. One of them, I won't tell the details. It's unnecessary. I'll just say, I really do think I was wrongly treated in a way that if you knew about it, you'd say, yeah, that was wrong. You were wrongly treated. I think I could prove that. I won't go into the details. This is years ago. And when the person said some stuff to me, I was like, whoa. I was just really harshly spoken to about something. And I don't think it was justified. And I told Jerry, I said, how, what, how do I respond to this? And Jerry told me, listen, did you do anything wrong in the whole scenario? I was like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit. I wasn't perfect in how I handled myself. Okay, why don't you just apologize for what you did wrong and, and just don't even bring up what they did wrong? I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. It feels like a 98% their fault, a 2% my fault moment. And um, usually it's the reverse of that, and we try to justify it. But like, th- this is one of those moments. I, was, I think I was pretty clearly being wronged. And Jerry said, but did you handle yourself perfectly? I said, no, I, I did not. I did not handle myself. Okay, apologize for what you did wrong and just let it, let it go. So I did that. You know, it's a little bit of a be a peacemaker in action and then pray your heart goes along with you as you do it. I did that, and the most amazing thing happened. This, this man who I was engaged with uh, in this discussion, he, turned, he, he said to me, you know what? Thank you for your apology. I was the one that was really in the wrong. And we reconciled right there on the spot. I never brought up anything that he did. He just brought it up, and he apologized back to me. I thought, this is incredible. And so does it always work that way? I wish it did. No, it doesn't always work that way, but it does sometimes work that way, and that's not even the point. If it works, the question is, what is my responsibility? And my responsibility is to pursue peacemaking. Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of a strife, the beginning of a conflict, the beginning of a strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. It's like breaching a dam, right? You get a little crack, a little water's coming out, it's the begin- you can feel a little tension between you and so-and-so, right? You feel that little bit of emotional tension in the air. You gotta, it hasn't been said, but there's a bit of an elephant in the room feeling, and suddenly you let it fester a little bit, and you're thinking about it, and you're rethinking on it, and you're really getting mad at this person now, and your emotions are getting pretty intense. Not a lot of peacemaking going on right now, and suddenly that little bit of water coming out of that dam is starting to flow like a river out of the dam. Suddenly you're seeing cracks across the, the, the gigantic wall, and before long you may have a relational massive conflict on your hand. The breaking, let me read that again. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. So what do we do? We run towards the problem. This is what peacemakers do. When there's a relational problem, you run towards the problem. I got permission from my wife to tell this next story. I'll make it brief. This week, this week uh, we had a, a fire in our oven. I mean, a legitimate fire. Like, I thought the house may go down on this one. This was a scary moment. I was upstairs. Kelly does not yell often, but she let out a pretty intense scream. I thought, someone has died. I come flying down the stairs, come around the corner, a couple of feet of flame coming out of our open oven. Oh, no. When I turn the sink on, I use that little thing. Like, I dare you to try to put a fire out doing that thing. So I'm like, ah, So Kelly immediately thought our previous owner left 
a little household fire extinguisher in the garage. I thought, I love that guy. That's awesome. So I, I, I opened the door. A little, we have this little white fire extinguisher. I've never used a fire extinguisher in my life, not even like, you know, a practice or anything. I pull that thing off the wall, pull the pit out, and uh, walk in there, and I spray it, and the fire is gone in like eight seconds. The whole fire is gone. It was a pretty decent fire for that moment. Our kids were like, what is going on? So uh, they saw it too. The fire is gone. It's out. And uh, we've been cleaning the house for several days. It's still in process. The ovens, we're almost there, back to where we can use it again. But I couldn't help thinking, you know what? Uh, that fire extinguisher moment is, is what we should do in re- regards to relational conflict. When, when a fire has started, when something is going wrong between you and someone else, and you know it is, if you ignore it, it is going to fester and it is going to burn things down. It is going to cause real bad consequences. So what you do is, you don't sit around and wait a minute. As soon as you know that there is conflict going on, you run towards the problem. With the fire extinguisher of the gospel, I don't know where I'm going with this, okay? But you know what I mean. You, you, you come in there, and by God's grace, you seek to put that relational fire out. And especially if you are at fault, oh my, especially when you are at fault, you seek to, uh, you seek to do that and to run towards the problem. At Westminster, uh, Coach uh, Ediger, uh, Jerry's brother, if you don't know uh, Mike Ediger, uh, he, uh, he's a great guy, but he's the dean of students, and so he, he says that every year I hear him say that a dozen times, I think, or at least numerous times. He'll say, if there's something going on, there's a problem with a student, or there's a problem going on between whoever, his, he always said, run towards the problem. And I think that is a wonderful piece of advice. Okay, l- think about this next illustration here. We must not read into people's motives and assume the worst. I do this sometimes. I think I could be a mind reader. Like, I know why that person did that. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And when you assume the worst, it can create more bitterness in your life. Listen to this little illustration from one commentator. So there was a new pastor at a church, at an established church. I believe it's a true story. And the new pastor eventually decided to extend the church service by 15 minutes. I may do that today before we're done. <laughs> Joke. Well, not really. Okay, so, uh, no, I, I, we're getting there. But um, it's okay. The, 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 sermon, uh, the service was extended by 15 minutes, so church used to end at 10.30, and now it ends at 10.45. Well, there was one man that sits near the back each week, and each week he stands up precisely at 10.30, the old service time ending. So now it ends at 10.45. He stands up at 10.30 on the dot. He straightens out his back. Uh, his jacket and pants, and he walks out. He never said anything, uh, but I could just feel his displeasure over the longer services. Indeed, sometimes I had to labor to stifle my anger at the weekly display. Now, do you get, you get, get that? They extend the service, but he gets up at the old service time and very clearly walks out the back door every week. So the pastor assumes clearly he's mad at me for extending the service time, and that's why he gets up at 1030 every day. He assumes a bad motive. He doesn't know that, but it looks like it, doesn't it? He assumes a bad motive, and now he's starting to wrestle with kind of angry feelings toward this guy who never said anything to him, right? You can multiply a million examples of that kind of thing. Then here's what the pastor said. He never said anything, but I could feel his displeasure over the longer service. I already read that part. The man left at 1030. Okay, then one week I, I changed the order of worship and put the sermon first, The man still left at 10.30, but later that day his wife called. Pastor, she said, you can't imagine how happy my husband was today. You see, he has to report for work at 10.45 on Sundays. He waits until the last possible minute each week, but it grieves him that he can never stay until the end of your message. Today he heard your whole sermon, and he is so pleased, I just had to tell you. Now, how many times have we wrongly guessed someone's motives negatively 
and struggled with bitterness or anger towards them, and it was based on a misunderstanding. If we want to be peacemakers, we do not need to needlessly assume the worst interpretation of every social interaction with whoever it may be. No, not at all. We, we instead need to be, um, we need to be um, slow to make judgments in that regard. You'll be glad to know I'm just skipping a part of my sermon. There you go. I just bought you five minutes of your day. There you go. Um, I'm skipping another part. This is even one. I'm just, you're, you're being, you're just, it's incredible. Uh, let me get towards the end here. Let me turn you to James chapter 3. Th- this is a great passage on this topic. James chapter 3. After the book of Hebrews, James chapter 3. And the more I looked at this passage, the more I realized how similar it is to, this, to the Beatitudes. He mentions a lot of the same kind of characteristics that Jesus does. Look with me at James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Just stop there. The me first, I've got my agenda that I want to accomplish selfish ambition mindset is always going to result in you having conflict with other people and for me. When, I've, when I'm grabbing onto my agenda and I am worshiping it, I've got to have it exactly my way, it's going to produce relational conflict with anyone who gets in the way of my agenda. So we need to be careful about selfish ambition. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, not peace, disorder, and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, blessed are the pure in heart, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, blessed are the merciful, and good fruits, impartial and sincere." And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those are peacemakers, those who make peace. Continuing briefly, the beginning of chapter 4 is picking up with conflict. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, just stop here. This This is a blessing from God. God is going to tell you in His inspired Word, What lies underneath the quarrels and sinful conflicts in your life and in mine? He's going to tell you what it is so that you can get help fighting against it. That's amazing. Inspired take on what's under our conflicts. Why do we have conflicts? Here it is. God is going to tell us in black and white. 4-1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. To quote David Powelson, who passed away just a few years ago, the great Christian counselor, David Powelson said, cravings, sinful cravings, lie underneath relational conflicts. Cravings underlie conflicts. 
When I have made, when I desire something more than I should, and I am all after that particular thing, in those moments when someone interferes, it, it, the conflict results. So, so listen, we need to be careful not to minimize the sin going on in our hearts when conflict arises. You know, one pastor said, we, we sometimes excuse it. We, we minimize it. We don't use moral, we sometimes don't use moral language to describe our sin. We use psychologized non-moral language to make us look better. Like we say things like, we're just temperamentally different. Our personalities clashed. We aren't wired the same way. We have some issues. How about this? It's bad news and then good news. Are you ready? In those relational conflict moments when, when I'm at fault, here's what I need to say. It's not just we're wired differently. We just had a clash. No, no. Here, here's what I need to say. When I, when I have a selfish ambition moment, I just say, Lord, in that moment, I was making an idol out of this over here. I was beginning to worshiping, I was beginning to worship and serve this thing for my satisfaction, joy, and identity. And I was so passionate about this false God that when so-and-so got in the way of my idol, I got mad at them and I responded with anger to them and I fractured the relationship. So God, because of this great evil within me, please purge me of this. Please cleanse me of this. Please forgive me and transform me and replace Jesus with my idol. Make Jesus the center of my, of my righteousness, the center of my identity, the center of my joy, and don't let it rely on anything else. And in so doing, there is hope for change. Look at verse 6 of James 4. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, let me close with one last story here. This story moved me to tears this week. I don't think it's going to move me at this moment, but it moved me earlier this week. And this is from 1998. Uh, John MacArthur was preaching on the, the, the beatitude I was doing, the uh, peacemakers, and he mentioned something that had happened just three weeks ago. And um, for those at the computer, is there a slide of a black and white image of a guy? I don't have access to that right now. You, you may see this guy. This guy is a murderer. Uh, this guy right here, uh, his name is Johnny Dean Piles. And he was arrested in 1982 because he was like robbing a liquor store, a convenience store, and a police officer showed up and he shot the police officer with a 38 revolver and killed the 32-year-old police officer, I think he was, 32, 34, and he killed him. He was caught, uh, arrested, and he, 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 was, he was put on death row. And he was on death row for about 15 years waiting to die. And while he was on death row, he started listening to uh, Christian pastors on the radio in prison, on death row. And... I'm going to read, I transcribed an interview he has online. I wrote down what he said. This interview was recorded five days before he was received lethal injection and was executed by the state. Okay, five, five days before his capital punishment, which he believes is just. This is what he said. Quote, I've had the chance to read, this is him talking about uh, MacArthur's commentary on Romans, which just makes me smile. He's got on death row reading John MacArthur's Romans commentary. That's, if you don't see the... <laughs> The goodness of God in that. That's pretty amazing. Quote, I've had the chance to read some of your commentaries, such as Romans and Ephesians, and some of the books you've written. I've also learned to love the theology of the Reformation, John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon, and many others that I've read uh, as well. And I've listened to some other teachers on the radio, such as Adrian Rogers. So this guy is listening to these people on death row. The interviewer 
asks him, what passages have been the most encouraging to you in the last couple of weeks? Quote, one of them that I think would be the most important to, to me would be in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The truth is, I do believe. Interviewer, what would you say to Mrs. Tobar, your victim's mother, if you had the chance to speak with her? Quote, I would try to tell her that the peace she is seeking, my execution won't bring the peace or the comfort you're seeking. It is only in Christ alone. What is your prayer for her? Quote, that she will find that peace in Christ. Our God will answer and give her the grace to repent and come to Him. Of course, on that day itself, he says, Acts chapter 7 speaks of Stephen dying the way he did when he stoned to death. He died in such a way that he was glorifying God at the same time. And that's what I hope to do, is to follow his example. Interviewer, are you afraid? I'm not afraid of death. It's just hard. It's a hard thing because I have to face it knowing it's going to cause pain again to my family. And I know it's going to bring relief to the pain of the victim's family. I'm not afraid to experience it itself. Why are you not afraid? Because I know Christ is there with me. What is death going to mean to you? Quote, death is... Death to me is the freedom from the presence of sin, and you know the burdens that this life carries. But the greatest joy of looking forward to this, because I've been anticipating this event, for me it's an event that I'm anticipating very much. There I will actually be able to stand before and worship my Lord, and you know, with a pure heart, with no sin at all in me, being clean, that is what I really look forward to. I'll be in heaven. As I said, the presence of the Lord, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Now, on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice website, they have his last statement recorded. This is on that website. Johnny Dean Pyle's last statement. Quote, I want to tell you folks there of a, I have a love in my heart for you. I hope you don't look for satisfaction or comfort or peace in my execution. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I want Him to be yours. I'm sorry for the pain and heartache I've caused your family too many years I've caused all my family problems and heartache. I'm sorry. I wanted to let you know that the Lord Jesus is my life and I just want to go. I'm going to fall asleep and I'll be in His presence shortly. I got reason to rejoice and I pray to see all of you there someday. And three, five days later, he was executed. A few weeks after that, MacArthur said this in his sermon in 1998. Quote, he started taking in the Word of God and he became the peacemaker on death row. He was the only one who could bring peace to the troubled hearts of the inmates who were there waiting to die. He was in contact with us for four years before his execution. He talked about how the Lord used him to be the peacemaker there with others who were on death row facing the same thing. He also spoke on this tape to the family, and he wrote a beautiful letter to the family of the victim, the man that he had killed. He's a real peacemaker. He was, and he knew how to bring peace. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, if you could take a murderer who killed a police officer while robbing a store, and in, while on death row, if you could regenerate his heart, replace his love for sin with a love for the Lord Jesus, and make him the peacemaker on death row, Lord, you can use anybody in this room. You can make any of us be true peacemakers. The truly impossible thing has already happened for those who know you. We were 
at enmity with you, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were not submissive to your law. Indeed, we could not be, Romans 8 says, because we love sin so much. And yet you broke into the darkness. As the hymn writer says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. And God, as we think about what You've done to make peace between us and Yourself, there is no limit to what we can do to bring peace to others in our life, whether they be unbelievers who need the gospel for the first time or believers that we have sinned against in some way. God, please make us to be peacemakers, and then it will be true. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Heavenly Father, we thank You that although we did not do anything to create peace, we only brought hostility, that You, at the cost of the life of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, You made peace by the blood of the cross. And that peace not only is between us and You, but now it is also seen in the local church as Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all different types of people can come together and find that our hostility is taken away in the gospel of Jesus. God, thank You for the great unity that we have seen so consistently in this church for the years since it began. I pray for more and more of that as the years go forward for Your glory and for the good of Your people. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.